can I convince your wife to watch Scream with me? Uh, I really want you to try because <laughs> I too want her to watch that movie. <laughs> I've been trying since the inception of this podcast, so we'll see. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I'm one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and I'm Kenef. I am great at doing stuff. Uh, joining me, as always, is my co-host. Uh, Martha Sullivan and captain of your bigger boat. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, that That's a nice bookend uh, in opposite directions, because today we are talking about blockbusters. Uh your homework was to watch Jaws, the progenitor of the modern blockbuster, and also you're living in the summer of Barbenheimer. You've probably seen at least one of them, maybe some other blockbusters of the summer. Uh, we're going to be talking about sort of where blockbusters are at now, how they've changed over time, um, what their future might hold. But before we get into any of that, it's only fair to share with you, our listeners, what is stuck in our heads. This is basically whatever piece of pop culture we want to be talking about. Martha, are you ready to go, or should I go first and vamp a little bit to give you time? No. Um, I was I was joking with Pete before we started recording that I did not really have one prepared. I my life in the past, uh, let's say, month has been very chaotic. Mm -hmm. um, and while I have been consuming a lot of media, not a lot of it has been like sticking with me like i've been watching all the mission impossible movies but i basically forget them as soon as i've watched them hmm. and i've been digging into the disney animated canon but like none of that is i think on the level of a stuck in my head um but this monday i did have half, i did have half a day off work so i took myself on a little solo movie date nice uh and i went to see talk to me the new A24 horror movie that's in theaters right now. Hmm. And I had a good time. It was not... I had been led to believe that it would be, I guess, more soul-destroying than I ultimately found it. Um, but it does some really cool things, and I found the central premise of it to be so believable that that in and of itself was, like, gave me chills. Hmm. Um because if you gave a group of teens a mummified, questionably possessed hand that enabled them to talk to the dead, they would absolutely film themselves getting possessed and put that on TikTok. Like, <laughs> that's just what would happen. So, uh, I, I do. I feel like horror might do it best, but I love when movies take into account, like, what modern society looks like. Uh, where, like, you know, so many movies push back against, like, oh, we have to incorporate cell phones in some way. Uh, but I, I think horror does it best when it's like, nope, this is what, like, some Gen Zers would do if they got it. For sure. It's one of the reasons I liked Bodies, Bodies, Bodies last summer so much. I was like, this, everything that these teens are doing is stupid and completely what teens would do mm -hmm. in this situation. Um, so, yeah, I had a good time. I... It, I, I don't know if it will be in my top movies of the year by the time we get to the end of the year, but it was certainly a very effective horror movie, and I'm looking forward to the to see what the uh, Philippou brothers do next. Nice. Uh, what is what is stuck in my head is um, much like you, I I I feel like I've also been consuming less media partly because I've been playing a lot of Tears of the Kingdom. So it's like, yeah, all right, whatever. Um, more Zelda instead of reading or watching TV or something. Um, and a lot of the movies I've been watching have... Mm, you know what? I'm going to on-the-fly change my... Stuck in my head. Um, yes! <laughs> uh, a, lot of the movies been, a lot of the movies I've been watching, like, you know, <laughs> have been Jaws, which I watched for the fourth or fifth time for this, uh, you know, podcast. Um, but a few weeks ago, I don't know why, uh, my wife Martin was out of the house, off somewhere. Uh, so I had, oh, she was in, she was up in Door County with some friends. Um, 
So I got to have a bachelor weekend. So I watched the 1977 William Friedkin, R.I.P., masterpiece Sorcerer, uh, starring Roy Scheider, just three years after Jaws. Uh, this movie is an absolute masterpiece, and it had the very bad misfortune to come out on the same day as a little film called Star Wars. Uh, so it was absolutely bodied at the box office. Um, it's a remake of a French 50s movie called The Wages of Fear, and the idea is four guys down on their luck uh, in Colombia have to drive trucks filled with sweating dynamite through hundreds of miles of jungle to try to uh, basically blow up a, blow up a, um, an oil well that's caught fire, like to seal the well shut. Uh, scored by Tangerine Dreams, so you just have like a crazy synthy soundtrack. Uh, directed by Friedkin, the last 45 minutes is just the most tense set piece you've ever encountered, and it's just dudes driving trucks across a bridge in a rainstorm. Um, it is, it is a, a masterpiece of a film. Uh, and so yeah. I have never seen this movie. Um, and until you just now told me what it was about, I did not know what it was about. Gun to my head. That is not what I would have predicted that a movie called <laughs> Sorcerer. What of one of the trucks Would is named Sorcerer. <laughs> they called one of the trucks Great. Sorcerer, which is never Fantastic. stated never stated on uh in dialogue. You just see them paint the word sorcerer. I'm pretty sure it was called that because the studios wanted to capitalize on like 70s fantasy vibes. Um, but yes. But they did it by not making a fantasy movie. <laughs> no, no. It's a very intense guys being guys <laughs> doing a job movie. Incredible. Uh, and yeah, it, and it is part of you. You sent me a, on a, a blue sky. You sent me a post of just four Roy Scheiders from the seventies for four movies he was in. Two of them by William Friedkin. And a, he's one of the hottest men in the world. And b, all four of those movies are absolute ten out of ten bangers. And he was just having a great, great seventies run. Please tell me what the other movies were, uh, because the only one I knew on there was Jaws. Uh, so one of them was All That Jazz, uh, the Bob Fosse movie. Um, where he okay. plays, where he plays, uh, Smob Smossy, uh, a a dance a dance choreographer in in New York, if you could believe it. Uh, and then the other one is the French Connection, where he plays, um, uh, the other cop. Ah, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of uh, Roy Scheider, we should probably <laughs> get into uh our our topics for the um for the episode, which is blockbusters. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. So hang on, get some popcorn. Here's your intermission. Go to the bathroom. Wow, some of these movies in the summer blockbuster probably should have had intermissions. Uh, looking at you, I, Oppenheimer. Mm, <laughs> um, welcome to my TED Talk. <laughs> uh, can we get into how Killers of the Flower Moon is going to be almost four hours long and probably not have an intermission? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Marty? Marty. <laughs> Listen, I'm here for it, but I'm going to the bathroom a few times. All well, right. This and, is... and speaking of, we'll let you go to the bathroom as well. We'll be right back. And we are back. So we are talking today about summer blockbusters. Hopefully you've got your nice big bowl of popcorn, uh, soda or beer, or whatever your drinking preference is uh, at the movies. And uh, you can sit back and listen to us talk about it. Uh, we're going to start with the progenitor of the modern blockbuster, 1975's Jaws. A little movie by a guy named Steven Spielberg. Uh, Martha, take it away. Tell us about Jaws. So before I get into Jaws, I just wanted to lead with a little bit of historical context on the term blockbuster, mm. which has actually been around since the 1940s and was first used to describe movies in relation to the impact that they were supposed that they were supposedly going to have on their audience. So um, as early as 1944, a war documentary called With the Marines at Tarawa. Uh, the advertising was running the line. It hits the heart like a two-ton blockbuster. 
Uh, so it was not until well, it, it should we be noted Jaws that, in the... It, it should be noted that Blockbuster referred to a bomb, uh, the Blockbuster bomb, which was being yes. used in World War II. So there we go. Yes. Um, so this this term in relation to entertainment has been around since the 40s. Um, but when Jaws came out in 1975, that is widely regarded as the first time we have started to use it the way that we kind of understand it now, um, which is do do do, um, a work of entertainment, uh, usually to describe a feature film produced by a major film studio that is highly popular and financially successful. Um, we have gotten lax about how we use this word to refer to movies in a way that Pete and I are going to get into later. Um, but Typically, those two things are the qualifications that you need to accurately describe something as a blockbuster, which is where Jaws comes in. Jaws comes out in 1975. Uh, it kicks off the summer, and it is wildly successful. Uh, Jaws was originally a wildly popular novel uh, written by Peter Benchley that was adapted for the screen by Benchley and Carl Gottlieb, and it was directed by a very young Steven Spielberg. Imagine the first major motion picture that you direct in your life is Jaws. I I kept thinking about this as I was watching it this time because there's so much water work. The idea of like your second feature film taking place in and around the water and you're you're dealing with film cameras and lights and now everything is wet just feels horrifying. And you have to direct a 20-foot a 25 foot animatronic shark that doesn't work because Paul Benchley in his book about sharks described them as being 25 feet long and normal sharks simply will not cut it. <laughs> Incredible. This movie stars Roy Scheider as Brody, Robert Shaw as Quint and Richard Dreyfus as Hooper, also known as my three boat dads. Yes. We also have Lorraine Gary as Ellen Brody Murray Hamilton as Vaughn, Carl Gottlieb in a cameo as Meadows, and a bunch of other people uh, who we don't really remember as much because Three Boat Dads. Uh, Peter Benchley also has a cameo as the reporter on the beach interviewing people. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. Um, but in case you don't know, <laughs> Jaws is a movie about a summer um, on Amity Island. Amity means friendship. Uh, where the beachgoers of the island are being terrorized by a giant shark. I, I, I uh, think and... Quinch said it best. Uh, shark in the water. Big shark. Our shark. Big shark. Yes. So we have Brody, who is the sheriff. Uh, Quint, who is a... Im Im I was going to say embittered, but really it's insultant sea captain. And Hooper, who is a marine biologist specializing in sharks question yeah. mark yeah. he does the science stuff these three gentlemen decide that they are going to go out and catch and kill the shark so it will stop eating people um it's one of the best movies ever made it, <laughs> and it, it was really is. yes <laughs> um and it was wildly successful it had a fairly harrowing production a lot of things went wrong. Um, it had a budget of $80 million. And I am I'm... looking at a box office of $798.4 million. That must be all just so... for inflation. Wiki's got its budget at $9 million and its box office at four seventy six, Which is still, like, no matter how you slice it, just an astonishing, uh, you know, return on investment. Yes. So... Um, this movie is credited with inventing the summer blockbuster as we know it. Um, this is really the start of movie of production companies releasing their big tentpole movies, like the big movies that are going to pay for all the other movies in the summer. Um, and I, I think that we, we see a pretty solidly like June, July release schedule for these. Um, 
I am not looking at an actual calendar, so this might not be totally 100% accurate. Um, but that continues basically until 2008, when Marvel releases Iron Man in May, which kicks off that summer movie season and thereafter gives Marvel sort of a, mon- a monopoly on that first opening summer weekend where summer is actually defined as like the first or second weekend in May. I I I think the original Star Wars trilogy and maybe the prequels also had late May release dates as well, but that like Memorial Day not like May May 4th for example. Uh but th- but May was always that was sort of like the outlier uh with Star Wars with that earlier release. Um Oh, you're right. I am, I just I just pulled it up and yeah, the original Star Wars was released on May 25th in 1977. So that is like a like a Memorial Day yeah. type and and release. Memorial Day is the traditional start of summer, so that you know Memorial Day yeah. to Labor Day. So that, yeah, yeah, that tracks. Um, so we have done an episode about blockbusters before. Yes, way back um, in the halcyon days of 2019, maybe even yes, earlier, might, might but in 2017. But weirdly, at that point, I had not seen Jaws, and now I have seen Jaws multiple times <laughs> because. <laughs> It, and it is especially interesting to watch Jaws now after um, the exposure to movies. In case listeners had not gotten this, the blockbuster is sort of my wheelhouse. Like, <laughs> I love, there's nothing that I love more than a giant spectacle movie with lots of explosions, people running at or from danger you know throw in oh sorry this is why it's so so funny to me that you've you've only seen jaws recently for the first time and you're just now doing a mission impossible run like the blockbuster is absolutely your wheelhouse and what you are describing is like every mission impossible movie right um and and yeah so the like it's it's very funny to me that it's taken you this long to sort of like get into into that particular franchise and then even to get into Jaws. Oh yeah, no, it's it makes no sense. Um the only thing for Mission Impossible that I can think of is that when the first one came out, I was really too young. Right, yeah. To um to really be into that. And then the second one wasn't good and then by that point you're like, why do I care about this franchise? Which again is um I do think that I saw one of I I am wondering if I'm going to start watching Fallout and realize that I have seen that one mm. before. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a conversation for another day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of the a lot of the DNA that we see that become kind of hallmarks of these big budget blockbuster movies that then tend to sort of dominate the summer market. These these DNA this DNA is in Jaws. Like it's it's a it takes place during the summer. It's got big action set pieces. It's a giant monster movie. I mean, the the really kind of, I think, unusual thing about Jaws is that you can call it a horror movie, um, and we don't really release big-budget horror movies anymore. Yeah, Sad. It's, it's a little more, it's <laughs> like it's a suspense action movie. I, like, you could, you I mean, could make I an argument it, that it's it horror, an, but... It's an action horror movie. It's a monster movie. Mm, mm. Um, but it's a genre film like however you kind of want to turn it around right it's definitely a genre movie and that tends to be what we see like effects heavy um you know expensive uh lots of like cool effect stuff happening like that's that's what we we sort of go to the it was an event movie yeah it was yeah um it was a thing I, you, I mean like you had to see it in theaters because back then there was no other way to see a movie but nowadays it'd be billed as like you have to see it in the theater you can't be streaming this at home yes this is why i was yelling at pete while we were off mic because a theater close to him is showing jaws 
next week. And I frankly think it would be criminal to miss the opportunity to see this movie on a big screen. The pro- again, the problem is it's a week and a half after I've already, after I just <laughs> saw it. That's a, that's a tight turnaround on, on rewatching an admittedly perfect film that I love. So we'll, we'll see if it ends up happening. Um, but yeah, so, so I think that we see a lot of the things and the reason that I wanted to sort of frame our just our upcoming discussion with what the definition of a blockbuster is, is because what I think it sort of colloquially means now, I, I think that the the financial success part has fallen off a little bit. And now it is simply used to refer to a movie that is expected to be a box office success. So the the um the movie podcast, The Big Picture, occasionally does film drafts uh, for various years, and their box office category is defined as $100 million domestic, um, which which I've internalized. Like, that's, on the one hand, that's a pretty good, quick, shorthand understanding of what a blockbuster is, especially in the 90s and early aughts. The problem is nowadays, like, you know, your film was made money in, in 1994, if you were The Fugitive, and you made $100 million, right? Because The Fugitive did not cost anywhere near that to make. Nowadays, if you're The Flash and you're barely pulling $100 million domestic, that's a big loss. Um, so internally, I still think of a blockbuster as being like, it's got to gross $100 million. It can still be a flop then, but it's it's at least past that milestone of like enough people saw it in theaters that we can say all right it was a it was a bit of a blockbuster even though it was a blockbuster flop um see i think i think that the key word in that definition is success hmm, i mm-hmm. think if it flops it it is automatically then, ruled out what blocks is it busting i mean dc <laughs> wanted <laughs> i believe it's busting warner brothers blocks <laughs> yeah no kidding like they they pitched it as a blockbuster, yeah. Um, but it it was neither popular nor financially successful. People did not like that movie. I mean, p- part of the pro- like, so I the, yeah. I mean, it, nobody liked that movie. Um, part of the part of the financial successful thing that gets so weird is with like with Hollywood accounting, like Men in Black, which was a a bona fide blockbuster, apparently still has not made money to this day according to the reports that, uh, like, Barry Sonnenfeld and the ditto, writers have been getting. Yeah, ditto Empire Strikes Back. Really? That's still a money loss? Man, hard, tough, tough, uh-huh. to make, tough to make movies these days. You just can't, just can't turn a buck on anything. <laughs> How many times has that movie been re-released? Are you kidding me? I'm not. This feels like an appropriate place to say that... Um, did you do your homework? Stands in solidarity with the WGA and SAG-AFTRA, and I would rather burn every single movie project that is that I'm looking forward to. I would rather put everything on hold indefinitely, cancel every TV show if it means that the writers who create the media that we enjoy and talk about so ferociously get paid a living wage. Uh, wait, wait, Martha. the 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 good The good people at Mattel slash Warner Brothers are putting a, are. are thinking of putting a Play-Doh movie out soon. Don't, don't burn everything to the ground. We got to see what that Play-Doh movie is going to be about. Everyone loves the toys. That's why Barbie did good because of the toy IP. So, you know, these people should be paid more to green light movies about Play-Doh. I hate you. <laughs> also, uh, that is true. Mattel is looking <laughs> to make a movie about Play-Doh because um, it, it's so funny that many, many people online, like writers and, and intelligent people have been like, listen, the thing that works about Barbie isn't the fact that it's Barbie. It's that it's Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie and being allowed to do whatever they want and uh, Ryan Gosling and also Barbie. It's not about the IP. It's about what you did with the IP. And I don't. So this is an Play-Doh's interesting be segue IP. because one of the things that I feel, one of the reasons that I think that Jaws was so successful is that it gave people something they'd never seen on screen before. And I sent you a couple of articles to read um, just to sort of help contextualize like my thoughts on the blockbuster and what makes a blockbuster and you know why they're in sort of a weird place right now. And I think that that's a big 
component of it is that the stuff that studios are expecting to be blockbusters are now part of franchises that are 30 movies deep that have been going for so long and while they can like i will i will go see every fast and the furious movie but i know exactly what i'm gonna get and i'm not really like on the edge of my seat kind of waiting to be surprised by it so i'm i'm sort of not surprised that number 10 in this long-running franchise did not perform as well as the studio was probably hoping for um but something like the next movies that we're about to talk about were wildly successful because I think they gave people something that they weren't expecting. Like they were whatever Barbie was going to be. I think people were excited about being surprised by it. Well, and, and as a as an example of what our summer looked like, I I took the the 12 films that came out this summer that crossed that $100 million threshold. Uh, this is not whether they were financially successful. This is just films that made over $100 million domestically. The Flash, a uh, troubled production in a troubled slew of DC movies um, that they were really trying to hype up, but kind of, you know, no one was excited for that for like, pick your reason you weren't excited for that. Fast X, the 10th installment in this franchise, which many people thought was at its best three or four movies ago. Uh, Elemental, a Pixar movie which we'll get into because this one's a bit of an outlier. Uh, this one had legs. Um, Transformers, Rise of the Beasts. I don't know what number of Transformers movie this is, but I thought we all stopped paying attention to this franchise a few of them ago, but apparently this did okay. Uh, Mission Impossible. It's like seven or eight. Right. Uh, Mission colon yeah. Impossible hyphen Dead Reckoning Part 1, which is number, I think, 7 or 8 of the Mission Impossibles. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, that's the fifth Indiana Jones movie. Uh, I've got an asterisk on this one, Sound of Freedom, which might be a total AstroTurf campaign, uh, but it did make 174 domestic, so it does have to go on here, no matter which, you know, right-wing oligarchs were actually buying the tickets for this one. Um, can, we, can we just... Can we just real quick sidebar about Sound of Freedom? I noticed in the table that you shared that the domestic and worldwide gross for that movie were exactly the same. Yes, that's because it did not have an international release. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Uh, then we have, uh, like, number five for the summer is Oppenheimer. We'll get into it. But frankly, insane that a three-hour biopic about the guy who invented the atomic bomb grossed $270 million domestic. Um, then we have The Little Mermaid another friggin disney live action remake i am i was tired of those with the first one here's another one it did make almost 300 million domestic but like yeah uh guardians of the galaxy volume three okay it's the 30th marvel movie uh it was a good one like it was fun uh but you know it's a marvel movie uh spider-man across the spider-verse visually super innovative i'll go see any of these spider-verse movies uh, but it is another superhero movie. Uh, and the number one is Barbie. So in this list, we have literally three superhero movies, a Fast and Furious, a Mission Impossible, an Indiana Jones, a Transformer, and a Disney live action remake. That is a... That is a uh, intellectually bankrupt list. You know, like a... Like, a, like those those movies are are remakes and retreads and all the rest of it. And it's boring to lambast. Oh, we're in the era of remakes. We're in the era of sequels. Because people have been complaining about that since the 80s. Um, but then on the flip side, you have Barbie, Spider-Verse, Oppenheimer making way more than anyone thought they ever would because they're actually interesting and they have actual stories to say. And, you know, we're not... Um, we're not going to be disingenuous about it. Like, Barbie is still a movie based on existing IP... Yeah. Um, but I do think it's fair to say that none of us knew what that like Barbie is an existing IP, but whatever but we thought <laughs> whatever we thought the movie Barbie was gonna be, whether you liked it or hated it, and I will say that I really loved it, um whatever you thought it was gonna be, that was not this movie. <laughs> I, I think anyone who went in with an like without a political axe to grind on it came away at least being like that was fun. Um, I I feel like if you left that movie without thinking that was fun, 
then you were lying to yourself or are so like brainwormed that you know well you, you can't no i I have heard some legitimate critiques from people. Like, I'm not gonna, I, I'm not gonna that, make just a blanket statement about that. That that was fun. Um, is a different review than that was a great film or like that was a perfect film. Like, I don't think anyone lo- like anyone being honest walked away being like, I wasted two hours that I'll never get back. You know. Well, but again, I think you're saying several different things and lumping them all in the same category. I think there are legitimate reasons that people had for not enjoying Barbie. Um, I don't think that anybody will argue with the fact that it was an impeccably crafted movie. Mm-hmm. I've not, I've not um, heard any good faith arguments of I did not like it. I've heard, I've heard good faith arguments of like I had problems with this, that, or the other thing, but not a straight up like under three out of five stars, you know? I am not interested in litigating that, but I'm happy to send you some stuff that I've been reading that I have found really interesting. Okay, yeah, I Um, I would like to see that, because I I straight up haven't seen it. But the point at the end of the day is that we all still went to see this movie. Right, yes. (laughs) It's it's made over a billion dollars worldwide. Yes. Um... The other movie that I do want to shout out for making money this summer was the Fathom Events release, re-release of the 2014 stop-motion animated movie Coraline, <laughs> which was Coraline. in yes, which was in theaters for us as a special event for two days and was so wildly popular that it beat ev- like it was second only to. Oppenheimer, I think, the weekend that it was released, and they're bringing it back for another couple of days. So, like... Mm, Obviously, Barbenheimer was the same weekend, so it would have been third behind both of those. Okay, but it was up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact fact that Coraline, (laughs) a movie from 2004, was, like, third in the box office that that weekend. Which Um, sort of loops me around to what I want to say, is that I think that what is consistent about what a blockbuster is and what that means is that it is giving people a theatrical experience that they either are either not expecting or that is an event. They are giving people something that they haven't seen a zillion times before, or they are providing like Coraline is a movie that we have all seen, but putting it back on the big screen for a limited time is an event like with a, with a capital e yeah and, and I, I wonder too if, if Coraline had the bump of like the only kids movie out right now is elemental so if your kids have already seen elemental three times hey Coraline's out yeah that was fun i remember seeing that as a as a kid myself uh let's go absolutely to Coraline, you know? well and this is not this was not a summer release but see also the wild success of the super mario brothers movie yes yes because like for three months in a row is the only kids movie out there so it just made all the all the money from all the kids mm-hmm. which yeah if you if you had to if you asked me what species of movies i thought would be going extinct kids and family movies were not would not have been one of my guesses but here we are yeah yeah uh, again, the studio execs, they're doing great. They're greenlighting the right projects. They're making great creative decisions. They're really handling this strike well. Uh... Tell <laughs> big, me. Big old so I, Yes. So I did go see Barbie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a very good time. Um, but it is impossible in this day and age to talk about Barbie without talking about the companion piece. That came out the same day. (laughs) Which, as Pete has said, was a three-hour biopic of the man who invented the atomic bomb. (laughs) Directed Um, by Christopher Nolan and billed as a big IMAX spectacle. So, like, and, and like, I am, like, you know, you said we're going to talk about marketing. The marketing of Oppenheimer is like, hey, Chris Nolan made a bomb as big as the uh, Trinity test, but it wasn't atomic. And he filmed it on IMAX. Do you want to see that? And it's like, yes, yes, I do want to see that. Uh, that's a, that's a yeah, seven minute Chris- sequence in a three hour movie. Christopher Nolan's marketing for this movie was like, this movie is so long. Your grandchildren will die while you're watching it. 
and it's great was his was his follow-up statement uh, he, what's what's the big going around on twitter now a statement and then in parentheses derogatorily uh that statement but then parentheses excitedly i just i truly thought it was wild the more christopher nolan talked about his own movie that he made it was just like this movie is so long the film the imax film killed a man like chris <laughs> I love it. Give it to me right into my veins. All like five miles of 70 millimeter IMAX film. That it takes but to play truly, this movie. Like, I, I'm not sure how much we can, like, I don't know that human language is sufficient to capture the utter bizarreness of the fact that these two movies, which are pretty opposite in a lot of ways oh 100 release in the, every way <laughs> other than they're, they're both the auteur, same day. they're both auteur visions right like yes um but they release on the same day and we collectively as a culture said we're gonna do both <laughs> five, five hours <laughs> in the theater please <laughs> we are not going to pit these movies against each other rather we are going to create convertible costumes. Yes. We are going. The, we are going to start drinking our beer at ten thirty in the morning. The girlfriends are going to drag their boyfriends to Barbie. The boyfriends are going to drag their girlfriends to Oppenheimer, and everyone's going to but have I a great weekend. Everyone's going to enjoy it. Um, the thing is that I don't know. I don't know that it was that cut and dry. I don't think anybody was dragging anyone to anything. No, I was. I think we had to people. Watch both of them. And I think that people, like the initial, when we all found out first that they were coming out on the same day, I do think there was a like, well, are you a Barbie person or are you an Oppenheimer person? And I think that cult, I think that culturally, we were all just like, no, that's stupid. We want to go back to the movies. Like we were, we are so starved for actual event movies that don't feel like they're treading water or saying anything interesting or, um, you well, know, and rehashing something we've seen before that we were all just like, you know what? Yes. Yes to everything that's happening here. Well, and I, I think a big part of it, too, is like Barbie does have that auteur imprimatur with like Greta Gerwig, right? So the film bros were early on supporters of Barbie because film bros like Greta Gerwig, right? And like, I'm, I'm just thinking if this had happened in like when we were in high school, I can't imagine the vitriol that Barbie would have gotten from every single teenage boy in the world. Um, because, like, Barbie. Ugh. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy that Gen Z, that the men of Gen Z stepped up and said, Barbie, woohoo! Um, and I, I, I think, going, going back to the, like, like, the Greta Gerwig bona fides helped it a lot. Um, my dad's a good example with this one. When, when like, you know, we, we've got weekly family FaceTime since the pandemic started. And when, like, you know, the first rumblings of Barbie were coming out, my brothers and I were like, Barbie, it looks pretty good. And my dad was like, Barbie, are you kidding me? And then once it came out and, like, you know, at least Mark and I had seen it, we were like, Barbie is awesome. And and he saw it, like, over the past week, and he saw both Barbie and Oppenheimer in the past week, and he was like, they were both great films. Um, never would I have thought my dad would go see, uh, you know, a movie entitled Barbie. But here he is enjoying it um my parents also both went to see it and they also both very much loved it mm -hmm. yeah but both my parents liked both films uh which was most people's takeaway but i i, but yeah, I, do, I mean what uh, honestly i think that the barbenheimer phenomenon helped both movies but it helped Oppenheimer a lot more than it helped barbie yeah i do think that barbie is the easier sell like even though it's a uh, you know based on an ip that a lot of people have either a mixed or complicated or negative relationship with. I think Margot Robbie has proven she can um, drive a box office. Uh, also, Greta Gerwig a, is... It's a two-hour fun movie I think instead it, of a three-hour, like, tough movie. <laughs> but I, I, I think it had both, like, popular brand name recognition and also indie darling support. Yes, like, yes. Barbie exists on many Venn diagrams. Um, and Oppenheimer, I think, even even though Christopher Nolan is sort of the film bro guy of Twitter, which I say affectionately, Inception is still one of my favorite movies ever made. 
Um, I, I think that he he crosses fewer, he melds fewer yes. areas than Barbie does. Yes. So, yes, I agree that the, the winner here, I think, was Oppenheimer. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that before Oppenheimer, his biggest, at least opening weekend, it may be gross in total, was Dunkirk. Uh, and it's like, yeah, that's because it's a World War II movie. That's always going to be a big draw, right? Also, it was an hour and a half, so that helps. Um, but yeah, now now it's now it's Oppenheimer, which is insane. Oh <laughs> uh, no, I guess I guess the Dark Knight must have had a bigger final gross because Barbie I just was, de- Barbie just I dethroned was... Dark Knight as Warner Brothers' uh, highest grossing <laughs> film. I, uh, sorry, uh, that was a I I know that what that stat was. Nolan's biggest grossing non-Batman movie was Dunkirk. Ah. Yeah, for, forgetting sure. that Batman skews all of his stats. Um, so we, we've kind of talked around this a little bit, but uh, the other the other thing that helped Barbie and Oppen... Well, Barbie and Oppenheimer obviously had the, like, self-supporting Barbenheimer phenomenon, and also they are auteur films that no one has ever seen anything like before. Uh, on the flip side... You have Mission Impossible coming out the weekend before Oppenheimer takes all the IMAX screens. So Mission Impossible opened with a lower gross than they wanted it to, but then it was immediately kneecapped by the Barbenheimer phenomenon. Absolutely mind-boggling decision there by uh, Paramount. Uh, and the the flip side of that, though, is Elemental, which opened weak with not great reviews out of Khan, but is the only kids movie in theaters right now. So... It's got legs. It's currently at 151 domestic, uh, 445 worldwide. Um, bit of a sleeper hit for a movie that I kind of wasn't that interested in seeing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing that I want to point out about Elemental is that I think Disney has allowed it because it has no other competition. Disney has allowed it to stay in theaters for a while. And I think we are now seeing the same phenomenon that happened with the first How to Train Your Dragon movie which stuck around for a long time and got the benefit of word of mouth support, Mm -hmm. which we hardly ever see anymore. Like movies don't stay. Um, Movies are not really allowed to find their audience anymore. It's all about that opening weekend. And I think the fact that Elemental, even though Disney really does not know how to market their movies anymore, which is wild to me. Yeah, like you are um, Disney. How do you not know how to market an animated film for families? And like when you have something like Strange World, where I think they kind of secretly wanted that one to flop, I think Elemental is different. But like I am a pretty well-connected Disney person, and I knew almost nothing about it. If I had not gone to see Little Mermaid in the theater, I would not have known anything about it. But I'm glad that Disney has let it. I'm glad the theaters have been allowed to keep it longer so that more people can see it. And so that we can see that sometimes it is beneficial to give these movies longer time to find their audience. And and the flip side is a movie like Asteroid City, which was never going to crack uh, 100 million. But it, it had much stronger opening than anyone expected. And almost immediately, um, the dis- their production company, their distributor... Looks like it's on Peacock, so I'm going to go whoever owns Peacock. Um, Universal. Cool. Uh, like, almost immediately, Universal's like, yeah, in two weeks, it's going to be on streaming. It's like, why? Why would you do that? Why keep it in the theaters for another, like, until Oppenheimer comes out, then nerds can do a double feature of Oppenheimer and Asteroid City, and then, and then you can put it on streaming, right? But I, I think especially well, since, since all the... All the studios got streaming services, which they somehow still haven't learned are not money makers for them. They're like, cool, we need to have these things in the movie in in a theater for two weeks where they need to make a billion dollars opening weekend like Avengers did. And if they don't, then they're failures and they're going to go on streaming in two weeks anyway. And that's going to be our business model. Good idea. We're very smart. Raises, please. I have a complicated relationship with streaming. I mean, everybody does. Yes. But specifically, specifically, I have a complicated relationship with streaming versus a theatrical experience. Because on the one hand, I love going to the theater. It is one of my favorite things to do. It is an experience that I treasure. I am glad that we are in a place, again, where I can do that. Um, But on the other hand, 
theater, the theater experience is not accessible to everybody the way that it is for me. Like I live within driving distance of four that I can think five that I can think of off the top of my head theaters that are affordable and like not absolutely disgusting and that show like new release movies. This is not true for everybody. And I do want people to be able to watch movies. So I get really bummed out when I hear people get very derisive about like waiting for something to come to streaming or like not seeing something in the theater because My, I would it's, rather it's it's these lead I would times. rather somebody I would rather somebody get to see a movie than not because they couldn't get to a theater to do it. I, However, movies make money in theaters and I want movies to continue being made. Yes. It is it is the most obvious business proposition in the world of if you put your movie in theaters for two weeks and then write to streaming, pulling it from the theaters, telling people that that's what you're going to do, you're automatically kneecapping your movie-going audience. I'm not opposed to streaming in general. You know, before streaming, it was DVD, and it was a three- to six-month wait between when a movie came out in theaters and when it arrived on DVD. And we were fine with that. That was a fine system. Maybe it doesn't need to be six months till it comes on streaming. Maybe it can be three months. But... There needs to be that lead time where people, as you say, can build the word of mouth. A movie can maybe exist and, and get some legs under it or be a total flop. Um, and like, and either way, it's like you at least had a legitimate run. You had a chance uh, to build that word of mouth to, to survive in the theater before you end up on streaming, which you will eventually end up on. I'm not, I'm not arguing that movies should be in be put in theaters and then immediately thrown in the trash as a tax write-off, uh, unlike certain producers think should maybe happen. Um, but it's 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 this. It, it was a a combination of the pandemic and every studio getting a streaming service where they were like, we're all in on our streaming service. We're going to cannibalize our our theatrical run. I think was like it made sense during the pandemic. We're not there right now. We need to be changed you know they need to be changing their business models to reflect that and they are not in many in many cases and in, in some cases they are but in general many of them are not yeah i just i i guess i just wish people would not be mean about the role that streaming can play in regards to access to properties um I think that the way that the studios are looking at streamers is flawed. Um, I think that the strike is a big illustration of that. <laughs> um, but I also think that if the only way that somebody in wherever Southern Illinois can watch Asteroid City is on Peacock, then great. You get to watch Asteroid City. Sure, like, absolutely. Just not three weeks <laughs> after the movie came out in theaters. Just, just yeah, like how, sure. Like just, I, just like how ten years ago, it was the same case. You could watch it eventually when it ended up on DVD, and you could get it from the uh, home video. You know. Yeah, for sure. Do you have anything else we want to say? Uh, you have a, a bit about what are we going for to movies for? Do you think we've covered that, or? I think we've covered it. Like, I talking about like people going to the movies to see things they've never been before never seen before or to see um like to go for an event like when people do anniversary releases like that's always super fun i've seen titanic in the theater a couple of times oh, i'm so mad um, that i missed this past uh anniversary release of titanic we were out of town and couldn't yeah I, and i was very upset <laughs> Yeah, I I miss that too, but I did see one. I did see the one before, um, and I cried the whole time. <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember, I remember when I it was. It must have been two thousand and five, because I think it was. Was that the two thousand and fifteen? Fifteen years. No, I. No, now I'm thinking of the Lion King. They did a re-release of the Lion King on IMAX, mm. and I went to see it. And I was like, I was either an older teen or a college student. So I was like, I was older. And this was a movie that I had seen as a child and was so important to me. I have bad news for you. That's 2005 and, then. 
the twenty. That was a '90s movie. No, but but if you were a if you were a older teen or in college, it was the year two thousand five, not the year two thousand fifteen. Well, I just I don't remember if it was um oh five oh six oh seven. Yeah, somewhere in there. But they put it on IMAX, and yeah, I went to see it, and it was incredible. And like that was a movie I'd seen before, but now I got to see it like on an IMAX screen. I, I <laughs> and am... that was. I was just gonna say that was an event. Yeah, I am. I'm so tired and not interested in all these like Disney remakes and in you know, we we could have a whole other podcast about where the MCU is at now and what's going on there. Um, but I am all in on these roadshow re-releases of movies from either our childhood or from before you know we got to see them in theaters. Uh, if they put Jurassic Park out in a theater again. I'm going to be the first person in line to see that movie, right? Like, and, the, and I, I the saw that movie box, in theaters as a kindergartner. <laughs> the music box did a midnight show of Jurassic Park like 15 uh, years ago. Oh, 15. It years was ago, okay. so fun. It was <laughs> like it was not for it was not for like an anniversary or anything. They just had like a 35 millimeter print of it, and it was incredible. Yeah, it was I, the best thing I've ever seen. I, I've seen a handful like of like midnight movies, 35 millimeter print of you know whatever. They tend to be the weirder movies, you know, like Escape from New York, Blue Velvet. Um, but sure. like, if if you were to, you know, do like, and and they they have been doing this since the pandemic, partly because studios are like, we don't have any movies in the can because we couldn't make movies for a year, so we're going to release all all our old cuts and try to make some money that way. Keep doing that; it's a great idea. It's much better than making a sequel that no one wanted or a remake that no one wanted. Just give us the original. And then use that money to fund new, interesting projects by new and upcoming filmmakers. Who, who'd have thought? Agreed. All right. Well, that seems like a good ending, huh? We've, <laughs> yes. We fixed it. We solved, <laughs> we solved the problem we, with the Hollywood studio system. <laughs> we solved it. Uh-huh. All right. So um, before we tell you what we are talking about next time, where we have a super special guest coming on, uh, let's run through all the information <laughs> we need to know about the show. Uh, so you can find the show, obviously, anywhere you can stream podcasts, any podcatcher that you use. Um, you can find us on Twitter at DYDYHpodcast. Uh, Instagram, we have the same handle. At some point, should we give ourselves a, a Blue Sky uh, handle here? Yeah, I yeah, don't right. have a free... I don't have a free invite code yet, but yeah. All right. well, we'll put it on. We'll put it on the docket. Put on the to do list. Great. Eventually, you can find us on Blue Sky. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. I don't know the last time that page has been updated. Uh, or you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast dot com. Uh, Martha, where can people find you? What are you plugging? Yeah, you. You can find me on all the places at Magical Martha, um, including Blue Sky, which is so much chiller than Twitter. I. Pretty much don't check Twitter anymore. Um, so yeah, Magical Martha, Blue Sky, Instagram, um, Letterboxd. Find me on Letterboxd. That's very fun. Yeah. Uh, I have a newsletter. I have a newsletter that I publish whenever I want. Right now, um, as I mentioned, I'm working my way through the traditionally animated Disney canon in release order and talking a little bit about thoughts, feelings, what strikes me about them, and of course, ranking them because I love a ranked list. Uh, my last issue was on the movies of up through the 1950s. No, 40s. I'm working on the 50s. I'm watching the 50s now. So I published one. How, how far one... are you going? Are you going to go to like the Dark Ages or? I'm going to go up through the traditionally animated canon. So I think that's the 2011 Winnie the Pooh. 2011 Winnie the Pooh? Yes. Whoa. Okay. Dang. I thought you were gonna like stop at Little Mermaid or something. Like, you know, one uh, one, of, one of the other like marketing okay. touchdowns. The Little Mermaid came out in 1987. Why would I not well, watch? Like, well, like because like that's the Disney Renaissance, right? And so if you're like, I'm gonna stop my watching like at the Disney Renaissance, then that's. I I didn't know that your plan was to watch every Disney traditional animated movie. <laughs> yes. Correct. Um, so yes, I just, the, the last one covered, um, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Fantasia, um, 
speaking and of um, Bambi. Speaking of roadshow releases, uh, Martin and I saw Fantasia in theaters a couple months ago uh, as like a kids, you know, kids afternoon <gasps> matinee event. It was awesome. Oh my god, Peter. Yeah, Peter. Yeah. In November, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra Ooh. is doing a full orchestra Ooh. to Fantasia as it plays in the background. Ooh. Interesting. I think it's selections. I think it's selections from Fantasia. I don't know if it's the whole movie, mm. but I am definitely going to see that Fa- in Fantasia some fashion. Is one of those movies that that's like scratched into my soul in a way that I forgot that there were sequences, and then they started happening. I'm like, oh wait, no, I know every movement of this sequence that I forgot existed until two minutes ago. <laughs> the like the, like the crocodiles, the, the hippos, and the crocodiles, and the. <laughs> Yeah, the the Rite of Spring dinosaur sequence. Oh, yeah, that's incredible! It's incredible. <laughs> that one I did not forget about. <laughs> do, um, do you want to know yeah, what part so... of the VHS Young Pete wore out on Fantasia? It was the dinosaurs I in can... the Chernabog. Yes, mine was the Greek mythology centaur mm. and fawn sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's what I'm writing currently. I just watched Peter Pan, which is not a good movie, you guys. Like, if we just want to leave that one behind, that would be okay. Um, Has there ever been a and... good Peter Pan adaptation? Uh, yes, the, yes. The stage production from, like, the 70s or whatever. Pete, there's been at least four. We can fight about this later. Okay. The new one is fun. The new one it. is fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, Peter Pan and Wendy, Disney+. Plus. Um, one of the, I would say, worthwhile Disney live action. And to be fair, that's that's uh, David Lowry. And David Lowry does is at least an interesting filmmaker. Yes. Um, has there ever been a good Peter Pan? What are you I guess talking there's, there's about? Talk, but <laughs> uh... we can, we can fight about this later. <laughs> Um, and you can find me on Tumblr where I am the Libratrix, T-H-E-L-I-B-R-A-T-R-I-X. I'm that same nickname on TikTok where I am only posting 30-second videos of my guinea pigs set to cartoonish music. <laughs> nice. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. Yes, I'm still there. Yes, I'm still on there. I'm mostly just retweeting things at these days. Uh, it's got a little deeper and wider political net for me, so that's my metier there. Um, you can also find me on Letterboxd and Blue Sky, thank you, Martha, uh, at P. Romberg, uh, P-R-H-O-M-B-E-R-G. Uh, Letterboxd is the best social media, so we're going to keep keep using that, guys. Um, so um, next- Listen to Love Ya. Oh, what's Love Ya? Love Ya is the other podcast I do with Pete's wife, Marin, where oh. we watch a rom-com or a teen movie and then we talk about it our last episode was about the netflix original love and gelato and our next episode is about i think it's a hulu original starring ellie kemper uh called something that i can't remember happiness but it's for new- beginners yeah. yeah that one it's called happiness for beginners uh and and speaking Thank of you. love you uh, our next uh, Did You Do Your Homework episode is a Love You crossover. Uh, my wife, Marnie, hey. joining us to talk about the Before trilogy. That is um, David Linkletter's, oh, do I have these off the top of my head? Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, After Sunset? After After Midnight. After Midnight, there we go. Uh, yes, the the uh, inadequately named Before trilogy, one of them is After. Um, these are, are, these movies are, you guys have mentioned these movies in like half of your we rec- episodes. So... We recommend these movies more than any other movies. <laughs> yes. So it's like at some point they need to be reckoned with, but they don't actually fit the uh, the brief for Love Ya. So we're going to do it as a did you do your homework. Um, so yeah, go, yes, I, go check them out. To watch the... A- to watch a Love Ya movie, it has to be primarily um, produced for or avail- or prominently available on streaming. Which uh, these are not, so your you're local, welcome. Your local library might have <laughs> uh, any or all of them. Um, also, oh, they absolutely will. Uh, if you want to go, go to real, library. If you want to do a really deep cut, one of the scenes in Richard Linklater's Awaking Life is with the before couple. Uh, just having a nonsense philosophical discussion in bed because that's what waking life is about 
Uh, so if you watch these three movies and just want a little bit more of them, uh, you, can, you can check that out. All right, great. Well, thank you all so much for listening. We will talk to you in a couple weeks. And until then, make sure you do your homework. Class dismissed. Yeah, well, That's... feel free to clip anything that I set out to use for a cold open or whatever. Uh, I, I think I had a cold open from early on before we even started the episode, but um, we'll see. Fabulous. Whatever. Yeah. You know, I you know I famously do not episodes. listen to more podcasts. Yep, so. exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Whatever you post is fine with me. Uh, so much power. All right. I figure Marin. I figure Marin won't let you be too mean to me. I don't know if she listens to these episodes either. Fair <laughs> <Sure> enough. <laughs> One of you might watch it just to make sure. <laughs> Absolutely not. That would ruin the bit entirely. <laughs> uh, all right.